Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. Please note that this episode contains descriptions of violence that some people may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia, to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This, Justin, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the UK, police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the podcast Protect and Serve. It is a beautiful Saturday morning, and I'm incredibly privileged and honoured to be speaking to Russell Waite. Russell has spent most of his career uh, supporting families and investigating some of the most awful people in society who have committed dreadful acts against young people. And I'm, as I say, incredibly privileged to welcome him onto the show. Russell, good morning. Welcome. Um, thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me on. Um, it was a pleasure when I heard some of your previous podcasts. I thought, wow, that's really interesting. I'm really glad that I've been invited to be on, on this podcast. No, no, thank you so much. It's uh, it's certainly been an incredible journey for all of us um, recording it. So uh, we'd like to delve into your policing career and the, and the fascinating insights of some of the work that you've done over your career. But as I say at the start of all of my podcasts, like every good detective, we like to start at the beginning. And ultimately, the biggest question is why policing? What, what led you into that direction in the early part of your life? Uh, I think round about um, the age of 15, uh, Ollie, I um, thought about policing as a career. Uh, so I applied to the Cambridgeshire Police, which I ultimately ended up in. Uh, but also the Metropolitan Police um, uh, gave me a post as a constable. Uh, and also the, the RAF um, for a commission to be a police officer in the RAF. Um, was successful in all three, but picked Cambridgeshire. A little bit of history. 
Um, my my great grandfather was a commissioner of police in Baroda State, uh, and his son. Wow. Uh, yes, so um, yeah, and his son was uh, uh, the guy that arrested Mahatma Gandhi on the salt mine march in 1930. So uh, uh, policing's probably a little bit in the blood. On my mum's side also, an uncle was a, a police officer. So I would imagine with your choice of career and vocation in policing that there was much support from family and friends. It wasn't something that you had to convince them was the right decision for you. There wasn't any kind of pushback. No, I was very lucky. I was um, totally supported by, um, in particular, my, my close close family uh, but also my friends, there was no, I didn't uh, grow up in a community that going into the police force was a, a bad thing to do. You were stepping against the flow. Um, it was all very supportive. Um, so so that, that was a good thing. Um, my teachers, because I joined at 18 and a half, uh, having completed A-levels, uh, were very supportive as well. So a lot of the people that we've spoken to have gone through Hendon into the London Metropolitan Police Training Academy. What was it like for you walking through the gates of Cambridgeshire Academy in, in, back in, I assume, the mid to late 80s? And what, what was that experience like? What were the emotions on that particular day? Well, I'm, I'm actually a bit older than uh, I possibly look then, Holly. So it was the late <laughs> 70s, early 80s. Um, it was, uh, as an 18 and a half year old, it was a little bit scary. Um, I actually went to a regional training centre, which was based in Oxford, uh, where mm -hmm. um, constables, and all male constables at that time, uh, there, there were different centres for uh, women police officers and, and male police officers then. We had a big intake, you know, 100 odd uh, officers was on, on our intake. Um, wow. And I really enjoyed the camaraderie, uh, I made very close friends with a uh, constable I'm, I'm friends with today. We only played golf together last week, so we're going back, you know, 40 odd years. Um, I found it a good experience. And was there any particular time during that academy that you realised that, you know, there's going to be some challenges in policing, that it wasn't always going to be rosy? There was, you know, there was going to be the dramatic aspects of policing, of chasing villains down and, and having to arrest them and use restraints and holds. But there was any particular time during your training that you questioned maybe sometimes the the confrontation that you might be facing when you leave the academy? No, actually, um, I, I think I was very naive, Ollie, and it wasn't until I, I started on, on shift in, in a small market town in Cambridgeshire that the reality of it all came into my life. And, and I, I really did wonder, you know, this 18, 19-year-old, what I was doing. I remember going to a domestic abuse uh, or domestic violence. The woman had been battered by this guy had been drinking. And I stood there as this 19 year old having no idea what this was all about. Literally, it wasn't something that I'd experienced in my home life. Uh, and I was the guy that was expected to sort it out. Um, the only way I could sort it out was by taking him out of the situation. Um, mm. But really, and, uh, and you talked about the conflict and confrontation on the streets. Uh, my, my school wasn't a rough school, but I, I, I'd seen lots of it. It was in West London, uh, 2000 people school, um, lots of things, saw some stabbings and things. So that wasn't new to me, but being the one that had to solve it and try and resolve it was new. And uh, it was a big shock to, really big shock to my my system, as a, in particular as a 19-year-old. So... You've graduated, you do your initial years as a constable, you're responding to all those initial sort of training type roles that you're expected to go to to learn and develop in that vocation of policing in the office of constable. Is there 
a particular point in time when you thought the intricacies of investigation and the, and the skill and the art of detective work is something that was attractive to you? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, after about a year, uh, uh, maybe a little bit longer, <clears throat> as a constable, uh, and you know, people would laugh when we talk about the serious crime uh, in a while. It was um, it was two boys stealing um, parts of cycles and stealing cycles that I came across, mm -hmm. and I managed to find that actually they'd done quite a lot of crime. And I went into the CID office, you know, as this young constable. Luckily, yeah. there was a very, very nice older const uh, older detective there that took me under his wing. And I spent two weeks investigating this cycle crime. And I thought, oh, this is really interesting. And literally six to nine months later, I came across a guy that was, um, he, he, he owned lots of apartments and, um, and houses, which he put tenants in. And he was bypassing the electricity meter. And if you lifted oh, the, wow. gas, uh, the gas meter up, um, it went slower. Uh, and so uh, I came across <laughs> this and I thought, I wonder if he's doing it in his other properties. And again, luckily for me, when I went into the CRD office, this same detective, a guy called John Parker was sat there. And I said, I've got, I think I've got another case. And before I know it, I had two weeks and we executed loads of warrants and um, yes, yeah, solved some crime. And that gave me the bite in to think, well, actually, I really like investigating. This, this is for me, I think, you know, the thinking man bit of it um i get the problem solving bit i get i think that suits me best and one of the one of one, one particular faction that's set up in cambridgeshire because cambridgeshire is a beautiful part of the uk and it's idyllically quite quiet usually it's not an awful lot that goes on too much but obviously we're going to talk about some issues which have certainly highlighted that part of the countryside but in 1978 the animal rights cambridge was the first national animal rights group to be set up i was just wondering from a public order perspective and protests was there anything that you had to get involved to in in, in that regard oh uh, yeah absolutely um throughout uh, basically all of my uh policing service in cambridgeshire <clears throat> we had various issues um in relation to animal rights so uh, obviously Cambridge University uh, had mm. facilities then, uh, in particular the primate experimentation that took place at Cambridge University. And we had on our patch Huntington Life Sciences. So mm. lots of protest marches, lots of intelligence, lots of uh, work into that domestic terrorism scheme uh, that took place. Um, so uh, yes, that was there almost all of my 30 years. Incredible. And you go from constable and you move into the CID and you start carrying out these sort of investigative roles as a constable. What was the transition like in terms of moving from uniform to plain clothes and then starting to move through those ranks as you did quite rapidly? Yeah, I um, was very lucky. I had a, an opportunity to do a thing called support group, which allowed you to be in plain clothes, do observations, do some intelligence, help out on uh, arrests and help out on crime inquiries uh, and that helped with that transition into becoming a detective. Uh, I was the youngest by about 10 years in wow. my, my, my CID office. It took a little while to get the respect of others uh, within that office I would say probably at least a year or more um, but I actually enjoyed the work and was quite successful. Um, you talked that I went through the ranks rapidly uh, I didn't start with. Uh, I spent eight and a half years as a detective constable, and I think that always stood me in 
you know, in good mm. stead. As I went through the ranks, and I was then the senior detective uh, investigating some, you know, really major crime. People talk of uh, you have to do ten thousand hours in order to be really good at something. Ollie, I did my ten thousand hours, <laughs> sat, sat investigating, sat in cell blocks, interviewing or with victims of every crime that you can imagine. It's interesting because in a previous episode, we spoke with Roy McComb, who's a very good friend of mine and former senior officer with the National Crime Agency and the RUC. And he had this analogy that he felt you grew into a rank. It wasn't something that you automatically attained all this power. Was that similar for you? I, again, you know, I'm going to talk about being lucky. I, again, uh, and it's, it's seizing those opportunities. Every single rank just about that I went into, uh, I had a chance to be a temporary uh, in that role, I, I was asked to be temporary DS, temporary detective inspector, DCI, uh, yeah. etc. And that allowed me to, to learn lots uh, and to grow into that role. So when I became substantive in that role, actually, in, on, in some cases, I've been doing it for a little while. Um, so that helped. Um, I, I'd say I agree with Roy is that you don't one day are a constable, next day you're a sergeant. You do need to grow into the role because there are different roles and you have different responsibilities. Mm. Um, but I was in the lucky position that I had that opportunity as a temporary role uh, on each, almost each occasion. And with each progression in rank that you made, was it one step further back from an investigation that you were taking in terms of kind of being there at the front line as a detective constable, taking the statements, interviewing people, detective sergeants, another slight step back, a bit more of oversight as to what's going on in with the entirety of the investigation? Is that, is that, is that a good analogy? Uh, I am. Um, no, I absolutely agree um, because there's no doubt about it. You have other responsibilities, other accountabilities. However, I was the sort of individual that uh, uh, I used to say I was a DC with a little eye when I was a, a de <laughs> detective chief inspector. So I had a bit of trouble as a three years I spent as a detective superintendent. But when I, I become the detective chief superintendent, I could then say I'm a DC with a little S. Um, so I, um, I always kept investigating. So even as the detective chief superintendent for the constabulary, the, he the head of CID, I was on the on-call uh, SIO rotor, on-call rotor for investigating child deaths. And I'd pick up jobs and some of, uh, some of the um, major crimes that I dealt with, some of the homicides I dealt with was in that role. And, and I get that I couldn't be totally devoted to it after the first few days, but I never stopped investigating. Uh, and uh, I think that's about me and what I enjoyed rather than about what you would do in that role. And I was luckily able to do uh, all of those things. You touched on a, a, a second ago, you were the on-call officer for child deaths. Yes. And investigating any homicide um, is really difficult and can be very confronting. But there is an extra layer to confrontation and challenges, which when it involves a young person or a child, and the sensitivities, the emotion, the support the families need, witnesses, victims, is really quite tough. How did you f move into that area in terms of, it wasn't obviously something that you had great interest in, but it was something that was a challenge that you like to try and overcome or try and get answers for families? What pushed you in that direction? I think I stumbled into it really by some of the cases that I dealt with. And we're going to talk about Holly Wells uh, and Jessica Chap Chapman shortly. Mm. I, I know Ollie. 
Um, but I, I, um, I, when I became a detective chief superintendent, I represented the six detective chief superintendents for the Eastern region. And uh, I went on a thing called the Homicide Working Group, which is a national group that obviously tries to develop professional practice mm -hmm. and standards in dealing with homicides in the UK. And at my very first meeting, they said, oh, we need somebody to take on the investigation of child deaths to lead on that for the, for the UK uh, policing. Uh, Russell, that's you. <laughs> and luckily, oh, no. with my background of having had a few cases, every child death's different. Families react differently, circumstances, and there's absolutely no doubt about it. It's a very, very emotional investigation. Seeing a dead child there, going to postmortems of dead children, uh, dealing with families that their, their child has died, um, sometimes in horrific circumstances, is mm. exceptionally challenging. Um, I, you know, I take my hat off to those that do lots and lots of this every day. Uh, I was in a position that dealing with it, being the investigator, it wasn't a regular occurrence for me. I, I dealt with a number, about 15, um, but that was over a period of years. Uh, some, some detective inspectors in particular deal with lots of these, and I really do um, take my hat off to them. Yeah, one of the main focuses of our podcast is ordinary people doing extraordinary work, and I think that is a particular area where it is, it couldn't be further in terms of it resonates so much with me in terms of they are ordinary people doing quite extraordinary work in incredibly challenging situations with people that are very emotional and, and need the, the greatest level of support in a time of dire need and, 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 and help. Hi, and thanks for listening to Protect and Serve. If you're enjoying the episode, please consider giving us a rating and a review so other people can find our show. And don't forget to hit follow so you'll be notified as soon as the next episode is available. Now... Let's get back to the episode. Let's move on to probably one of your most notable cases, if we may, which does involve uh, two young girls who on the 4th of August 2002 went missing uh, and then were sadly uh, discovered on the 17th, some 13 days later, um, uh, as a result of sadly being murdered. And I think what shocked the communities more than anything else and the world to that extent was the individual involved and how close he was in terms of the response to trying to locate these missing young ladies. It almost appeared in the background of every uh, police briefing and, and TV appearance. It was, it was eerily quite confronting, just that part of it. So for those that are listening to this podcast, if you could talk us through the Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman investigation. I know you weren't the SIO, but you certainly played a significant part in that. Um, for those people who don't realise, just talk us through what that was all about. Yeah, I, I'll come up to my, my involvement uh, in, in a short, short bit. But um, so two 10 year old girls go missing on a on a Sunday afternoon in, in a very, very small market town in Cambridgeshire, a lovely place. So um, uh, not far from Ely, not far from Cambridge. Uh, and this literally shocked uh, officers in Cambridgeshire and subsequently across the UK and the world, really. Good evening. Police in Cambridgeshire have staged a reconstruction of the last known movements of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman. The 10-year-old girls went missing six days ago in their hometown of Soham. Detectives now say there is no evidence that Holly and Jessica went to meet someone they contacted in an internet chat room. Uh, and uh, for, a sh for a while, people were thinking that 
two ten-year-old girls would be found. They'd gone off、mm. together, but those that had spoken to the Wells and Chapman family would, without a doubt, know that this wasn't their girls. This isn't the sort of thing that their girls would do, and that something sinister, most probably, had happened to them. The intense searching continued. Soham's drains a new focus for specialist police search officers. This evening, the hunt for the girls and whoever may be holding them is about to widen in circles, stretching miles across the spaces of the Cambridgeshire Fens. But the girls are still missing, despite one of the biggest manhunts Britain has seen. And so the investigation rumbled on for about ten days. Lots and lots of staff, huge media interest,、uh, and then Chris Stevenson took over.、Uh, he was the overall SI after about ten days, and、uh, things dramatically changed then. And、uh, when they changed,、uh, there was Ian Huntley、uh, and、uh, his girlfriend Maxine Carr、uh, brought in for questioning. And then on that Saturday morning was when、uh, I got involved. Saturday the seventeenth of August. So I, I'd been on holiday with my my family and been kept up to date on what was、uh, what was happening. And Chris and I had had a couple of conversations. I'd been giving him a little bit of advice. Uh, which、um, he subsequently didn't take, but、uh, that—that's another matter.、Um, and、um, I was doing a master's degree at the time,、um, and my thesis was on investigating child deaths.、Uh, I subsequently did that as a doctorate.、Uh, my thesis was investigating child deaths, and、um, my system of working was laying,、um, going through、um, books, and had had the whole of my textbooks all in my lounge, and three teenage children. My wife said, "Oh, please clear those books away." So I put them on the the dining room table, laid out how I wanted to go and write up my、um, essay.、Mm. Uh, when I got this call from the deputy chief constable, said Russell, two uh, uh, two bodies have been found in in a ditch、uh, in in Lakenheath,、uh, which is in Suffolk. There's an area of terrain of, which is mixed fields, woodland tracks, etc.、Uh, the bodies were discovered about 1 p.m. He reported to local police, who called in Cambridgeshire officers. We're currently liaising now with the Suffolk officers、um, to obviously do forensic examination, and we've sealed off the scene. Families have been told we've made a discovery, but obviously we can't be sure at this stage exactly what we're dealing with or the identities of those involved.、Uh, we want you to go and be the SIO of that deposition site,、uh, and of course I I said yes, and、um, I, I ended up there. In fact, I drove there a little bit like a zombie because I I wasn't fully up to speed on the on what had happened. All the intricacies of the investigation.、Uh, so I was going in a little bit blind, which does happen when you get a phone call in the night or in the day. There's a body、uh, somewhere, and you go and deal with it. I felt like that, but the trouble is,、uh, the conflict I had in my my mind as I was driving there was that actually there was a big playlist to this already. There was a huge amount of knowledge already, and I wasn't aware of that, and that that unsettled me a little bit.、Um, but when I got to the To the scene,、uh, and I can describe that. You know, it's 20 years ago, but I can picture it like it was yesterday.、Uh, mm. I, I stood at the scene, and the Suffolk Constabulary put in a common approach path about 400 yards up this、um, this private farm farm lane.、Uh, there was a ditch running along, a drainage ditch running all along the side, and that's where the girls' bodies were. Uh, there was a,、uh, three witnesses that had found the bodies: a dog,、uh, a couple of people、uh, were dog walkers,、um, and, and the gamekeeper. 
And I thought, right, I need to deal with them. And I just then switched from this person that was thinking, I need to know everything into, no, I need to now do my job. And my mm -hmm. job, which I spent all those years I talked about earlier, being an investigator, is to investigate this particular scene and not worry about anything else that's going on. Focus on getting as much evidence from this scene that I can that will help the overall investigation. Uh, so that's what I did. I had three witnesses there. I needed people to go and talk to these witnesses, take their statements. And of course, these were traumatized witnesses. Let's, mm. you know, it's it's an awful experience what they saw and they needed some support and they'd been left standing there and, and I very quickly needed to look after them. And you won't believe how quickly uh, the media, the public started turning up. Uh, at the cordons that we put at the end of this road. Literally, by the time I left there to do a briefing at Mildenhall Police Station, there were hundreds and hundreds of uh, people had turned up. For the people of Soham, today's developments have brought shock and sadness. The news was what many people had dreaded and had desperately hoped would not be true. We are certain, as we possibly can be tonight, the two bodies, that they are those of Holly and Jessica. Holly and Jessica's families have been told this terrible news. Do you find that peculiar, I say peculiar, you, I suppose it was such a national story that people are interested in, but I suppose you, I don't know, I, I always, it's one of the difficult, it's one of the most difficult priorities for police is managing the media and public at such confronting scenes, because I suppose you ask yourselves, why would you want to be here? This is a really troubling environment. This is, sometimes I would, you know, I can expect some of the parents wanting to visit to understand, you know, where where have my children been brought to so that must be this I, I imagine as an sio for that particular scene there's lots of conflicting priorities and how do you prioritize what's important now right we we, we had a big um, media machinery uh, involved in 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 the holly and jessica case which is different to other cases as an so that you know that's part of your package that you work with your media department part of your your things that you've got to think about uh, i had less so here um other than uh, i really made needed to make a couple of decisions. And one was they were desperate to film uh, film there, uh, desperate to come there. And so I made a decision with our, our media departments that what I would allow to happen uh, is them to come and do, uh, have a representative. So one from film, one from uh, paper reporting, one from radio, to come down to this outer cordon that I had. Uh, well, in a cordon, in, in essence, I had a very a small inner cordon right where the girls' bodies were, uh, to do that, and they would share. So the media department had sorted all that out. So I allowed that to happen, uh, and that seemed to alleviate them. And what I said to them was, film, you know, be here for a little while, but film as long as you want, but I want you to cut it up so that you're showing new bits of footage during your 24-hour broadcast or whatever you're, you're doing so that um, you're not pushing us to say, well, we've used that, we want something else now this is what you can use. So that was one decision I think that worked out really well uh, and seemed to be accepted. Uh, the second one was we had a couple of uh, news uh, helicopters kept coming overhead and trying to film down into the ditch. Luckily it was covered by some woodland uh, and uh, I, um, through negotiation actually with Chris Stevenson and others and uh, the USAF that are based in Lakenheath, we put a no-fly zone on. Uh, and we oh, managed wow. to get our police helicopter up 
Uh, and uh, so this no-fly zone meant that they couldn't breach that, and which they didn't breach. <laughs> and I got a call about five days later, Ollie, from uh, this uh, high-up uh, colonel in the USAF uh, Air Force who, who rang me and said, um, uh, Superintendent Wade, I was, a, I was a detective superintendent at the time, um, you've got your no-fly zone on, but we're, we're in the war on terror at the moment, and we really need to fly again. And I said, War on Terror in rural Suffolk, <laughs> really? <laughs> and he said, no, 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 it's the War on Terror. This is where we, you know, one of our uh, last off points is from. I said, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. And I'd forgotten all about it because uh, we we moved the girls' bodies on the Sunday and we'd finished our work there by about Tuesday. I invited both families up to, to visit to see where the girls' bodies were, uh, I think, on the Wednesday. And I said, oh, no, absolutely, uh, put it back on. So, yes, the no-fly zone... Um, was, was successful, but uh, yes, I, I forgot it, much to the, the United States Air Force's angst. I think it just goes to show you the complexities of these investigations and what you've got to think about, and in terms of those conflicting priorities. And I think more importantly, giving some dignity to the deceased, to the victims, in not becoming these media spectacles. Yes, the story is an important one to cover, and it's one that the public need to be aware of, but there are families that wishes need to be respected. They're grieving, and the last thing they want to see is a helicopter footage flying over the top of where their children have been taken by these dreadful, evil individuals. What was when you look back on that investigation and you see Huntley in these media images? Do you think he was all? Was he was you know was he a suspect from the outset in terms of hanging around? Was he being overly involved so he could see the direction the investigation was heading in? I think a lot of people have felt in the dark and felt like um, we can't do anything to assist the police, we all want to do something, but nobody quite knows what. I, I um, had uh, very little to do with Huntley. All of my work was with um, Polly and Jessica and all that forensic recovery uh, and, and post-mortems and uh, etc. and working with the families a, a bit. Um, but he was nominal one. So he was nominal one in our um, major crime you know, database, the Holmes database. So he was there from day one. In fact, the uniform sergeant that was happened to be the uniform shift sergeant that day found him quite um, scary. They very uneasy from her very first meeting with Your him. Your school caretaker, the girls Jessica and Holly would know you, and they saw you on the front doorstep. What what went on? Well, the girl, I don't know the girls. Um, I stood on the front doorstep, grooming my dog down. She'd run away and come back a bit of a mess. Um, they just came across and asked how Miss Carr was, as she used to teach them at St Andrews. Um, I just said she weren't very good, as she hadn't got the job. And they just says, please tell her that we're very sorry. And uh, off the walk in the direction of the, um, the library over there. How did they seem to you? They seemed fine, very cheerful, happy, chatty. I didn't see anything untoward, nobody were hanging around. You know, they just seemed like normal, happy kids. Safe and well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you may, as it turned out, have been the last person to actually chat to them before they vanished. Yeah, that's what it seems like. And it's a mystery? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all, everybody around here, I mean, I've been speaking to a lot of people, um, and what they're saying is, you know, while there's no news, then there's still that glimmer of hope, and that's basically all we're all hanging on to. And there was nothing that Sunday evening that gave you a glimmer of suspicion that anything was wrong? No, not at all. Wow. So, uh, yeah, I, he was there. And in particular, when Chris Stevenson took over as the SO, absolutely, this was, he was the focus. And and Ian Huntley appearing on all of those television broadcasts and 
being interviewed by all those reporters helped us enormously at the trial because we, we showed the jury the footage. We got the journalists in the witness box. They gave evidence. They said what they thought of him. And literally, without Ian Huntley ever having to talk to us on interview, which, which he didn't, uh, or um, having to go in the witness box uh, at uh, the Old Bailey, um, the jury had heard him talking about the case. And so it was actually, as it turned out, his actions um, really didn't help it. In, you said you, you obviously your focus was purely on um, as the SIO for the recovery and the investigation of where the two young girls were taken. How do you manage your own emotions through that particular part of the investigation? Because it's quite challenging. It's very confronting. Obviously, you're dealing with very emotional parents. But you must get home at the end of your shift, which I assume are incredibly long days. And you must sit down in the couch, whether with a glass of wine or a Diet Coke or whatever, and take a big sigh of relief and then have a chance to process what you've just been part of. I um, I uh, didn't have um, any... Uh, emotion during that uh, investigation at the time I, I think because I, I had so much to do and think about it was uh, absorbing me uh, I've got a uh, which we, we talked about ordinary people I've got a faith uh, I've got a loving family three now grown-up children uh, at the time they that they were in their teens one was just about to go off to university and I was able to compartmentalize my profession professional life into being subsumed with what they wanted and, and, and other things that I was doing. Uh, I, I did um, shed a tear. So when, when I, um, so we, we got, we made it, or I made a decision to get um, the Chapman and family, uh, uh, Wells family to the scene. So we bought a double bouquet of flowers, which we placed in, in the ditch exactly where the two girls uh, were lying. And um, Kevin, uh, the, the Chapman family came, uh, and in fact, um, one of the grandparents was a retired police officer, and that was fine. They came with the family liaison officers, who were absolutely superb. You talked about ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Those family liaison officers of both the families were extraordinary, uh, as were both the families. Let me tell you, both those Wells and Chapman families were outstanding people, individuals, supportive, loving um, so we, we looked into this ditch, and so I, I had um, Kevin Wells was sat in the middle, uh, Nicola, his wife, was sat the other side, and uh, I, I pointed them, this is where the two girls were lying. I said, Ian Huntley used to go, um, he used to go plane spotting just down here, uh, I pointed to that, he used to live in a cottage just over there, I pointed to that. And then I turned around my back and said, oh, his grandmother used to live over there. So Nicholas started crying. And then I, I just started crying. And Kevin mm. put his arms around both of us and said, you know, that's okay. Let's move on, shall we, Russell? And you just think, really, the gravity of the man, unbelievable. Um, so that was the only time I showed any emotion. Um, at the trial, when my bit, the forensic, bit and the body recovery it was very eerie um in fact um les chapman it was uh came up to me in one of the breaks and said this is your bit isn't it russell and he said i was thinking about you today and he says it all it all seems real now this is where we're talking about our girls have gone now uh and it all seems real uh and that brought a little shudder th through me um but i think i've been able to always be that 
not compartmentalized, but I've got a job to do. And if I don't do my job, I need to do it, um, do it well. Um, but uh, it hit me two or three times uh, later. Um, this particular case, and I've dealt with lots of cases before, lots of cases since, including mm. baby deaths and child deaths. And But this case had such an emotion to it. You know, even now I could get emotional. Not that I won't let myself, but I can feel the emotion as we're talking on. I say we talk about career highlights, and I think we're cautious in terms of how we phrase that with this particular matter because I don't ever think it's a highlight, but the highlight is supporting the families through a really, really difficult time. I assume you look back on that period of your career and that particular investigation very proud in terms of the support you could provide to families in trying to bring a closure to what would have been a a dreadfully awful chapter in their lives. Yes, I, I, um, I, I think, uh, and reflections are, um, you, you know, you interviewed Roy McCune, you, you interviewed lots of people. I, I was very lucky I got the Queen's Police Medal. Uh, and one of those reasons I got the Queen's Police Medal uh, and, and my investiture when I met the Queen was that I absolutely was about this case. Uh, I think I, I did lots uh, when I say I, me, me and the team, let, let's be honest, it wasn't me. There were some fantastic mm. forensic scientists. You know, I'm, I only met Nat Carey, uh, Dr. Nat Carey, yesterday. We met up and uh, he was incredible. Uh, lots of the scientists were great. My team, the police officers. So, so uh, we got lots of things right, that, that lots of good learning uh, has come from it. Lots of changes in practice has come from it. I was the SO for the Bishard inquiry about... Uh, how information's exchanged. Um, yeah, I, I, I look back on it. It was something that I think I contributed to by doing my job, my role, really well. Um, and I was allowed to do that all those years of experience, I think. And Chris let me just get on with it, which also helped. You're listening to part one of my chat with retired Detective Chief Superintendent Russell Waite, QPM. In episode two, Russell talks us through more of his incredible policing career, including one of his most high-profile investigations into Lee Shakespeare, who preyed on single women, poisoning them with what was believed to have been the date-rape drug GHB. Shakespeare, originally from Harbury near Lamington Spa, began his string of offences in December 2000 while working at a service station in Peterborough. This and much more next on Protect and Serve. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production, hosted by Oliver Lawrence, research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley, produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network.